when it's my turn. <laughs> All right, we're going through the book of Luke. And today we have a chance to talk about what faith is and what it looks like for you to put your faith in Jesus. So turn with me to Luke chapter 7. We're jumping into a new chapter as we finished out his sermon on the plain last week. Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After he had finished all his sayings, talking about the sermon on the plain, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion, this is a big deal, a centurion was a Roman soldier who was over a hundred others. They were paid very well. They were highly thought of in the kingdom. This is a big deal. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation and he's the one that built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to Jesus, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that was following Jesus, he said, I tell you, not even in all of Israel have I found such, say the word, say it louder, faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So what can we learn about faith from this passage? Well, here's the first thing I want you to get. You'll never put your faith in Jesus until you stop trusting in something or someone else. And I'm going to talk some more about what that something else so often is. But let's start by answering this question. So what is faith? What is faith? The word faith is used 243 times in the New Testament, but this is just the second time we're seeing it in the Gospel of Luke. So what is it? What is faith? Well, I hope you realize when the Bible talks about faith, it's not talking about the antithesis of reason, as if these two things are in direct opposition to each other. Faith versus reason. That is not the case at all. Faith for the Christian is a reasoned response, a reasoned response of trust in Jesus that, that is based on the knowledge of who he claims to be and what the scriptures testify 
he did for us. Oh, listen to me. You don't become a Christian without thinking. And after you do, you don't stop thinking. It's not faith versus reason, my friends. In other words, faith is a commitment of mind and heart to surrender your life to Jesus and follow him based on the testimony of God's word, the testimony of God's world, and the testimony of God's spirit that is at work in this world. Now, I hope you realize the testimony of God's word. You got to think as you read it. There's knowledge here. There's information here. There's evidence here. You can't do this without thinking. There's the testimony of his word, and it has endured. And there's credibility to this word. There's the testimony of this world that involves knowledge, my friend. You can, like it or not, human beings are stirred to think as they consider this world. You can't help it. You cannot help being moved by this world, dig into any, any knowledge, any category, whether it's biology, mathematics, music, astronomy, on and on and on and on. And you're moved to think about the complexity and beauty and wonder of how the, just take the DNA, DNA helix alone, right? And you begin to dig into that and say, This could not have just happened and started with slime or an explosion and moved to such a level of complexity and beauty and wonder. There must be a powerful, beautiful, wonderful, intelligent designer behind this. The testimony of God's word. The testimony of God's world. God's God's word says the heavens declare how an explosion did this. Every time I consider the heavens, I think, yeah, that's how that happened. The heavens declare the, oh, say it again, of who? God. You have to work hard to not think about it and keep saying, keep saying. I remember I read Francis Crick, you know, he was a scientist, biologist, He kept saying to his students, make sure you do not think this happened by God. Why is he saying that? Because that's what you start to think. He's saying, be careful. You're going to have to work hard. That's what the Bible says. You actually have to work hard to suppress the truth that the glory of God and someone bigger did this. You don't become a Christian without thinking and you don't stop thinking after you become one. It's faith and reason. The testimony of God's word. The testimony of God's world. And the testimony of God's spirit that is at work in this world. So, who has this thing called faith? Who has this thing called faith? Are Christians the only ones with faith and everybody else is living strictly by reason and logic alone? That is what unbelievers would love for you to believe. That's what they harp on. We're the only idiots that use faith. Everyone else is totally, totally rational. That's a lie. That is not true. 
It's what they'd like you to think, but it's just not true. Everybody has faith, and everybody exercises a measure of faith. The only question is where you are placing that faith. That's the only question. Where are you placing the faith that you do exercise? You see, the religious leaders in this passage do not believe in Jesus. They do not believe in Jesus because their confidence was still placed. Their faith was still placed somewhere else. And we're going to talk about that. While the centurion indeed has real faith in Jesus. And Luke shows us the difference in verse 4 and 6. Look at verse 4 again. When they, the religious leaders, came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, The centurion is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Do you hear what they're saying? And where they have placed their faith? In the goodness and merit of mankind. The goodness and merit of mankind. The religious leaders are saying, you should do what this man wants because he deserves it. He's worthy of your power being granted to him. He loves our nation. He's not... He doesn't have the typical Roman racist attitude that looks down on us as a conquered Jewish people. And he's incredibly generous with his money. Jesus, he built us our synagogue. This is so rare. He's not a racist, doesn't look down on us. He loves our nation and he built us our synagogue. In other words, their thinking what so often we still think today. You ready? You hear this all the time. Even if it's not voiced, it's right there. He's a good man doing good things. Therefore, you should repay him by doing what you can. You realize that's the very essence and heart of religion. Show me what to do. And after I'm doing it well enough... Please do what only you can do. But we'll get there only by me doing everything I can do first. That's religion. And it is inbred in us. Religion. Show me what to do. And when I do it well enough, of course I need you to add a little bit to it. That's religion. Religion. The centurion had a radically different approach to Jesus. Look at the second half of verse 6 again. The centurion sent friends to head him off. He's not even to the house yet. Sent friends saying to him, notice notice the title he uses for Jesus. Saying what? Lord, do not trouble yourself. Look at the contrast. The leaders had said, he's worthy. He says, for I am not worthy. To have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. Oh, I love this phrase. But say the word. Just say the word. Say the word. And let my servant be healed. 
You hear the difference? He's saying, I don't deserve anything and I'm not worthy of anything. But I trust in what you can do by the power of your word alone. I make no demands. And I don't bring any of my own merit to the table. I am fully confident in your word and its power to do what you want it to do. So don't make a mistake right here. Both the centurion and the religious leaders have faith. The centurion has faith in Jesus. The religious leaders have faith in moral goodness and performance. That you can earn or merit favor with God. See, here's what's going on. If you don't believe in Jesus for justifying yourself and being made right, it means you are trusting in something else. Because as human beings created in the image of God, unlike the rest of the planet, you're in the image of God. As human beings created in the image of God, we all have an awareness, an innate awareness of something being wrong. And a desire, a desire to somehow justify ourselves and be made right, right. So here's what's really going on. You never disbelieve in God and his son, Jesus Christ. Don't believe in that. Without at the same time believing just as deeply in something else. It's just a question of what that is. And very often it's yourself. Yourself, right? Because we have a culture. They've been doing it for centuries, maybe not centuries, decades now. Drumming into us. You can do it. You can do it. Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. You can be anything you want to be. You can do anything you want to do. Vomit. So not true. So not true. But that's the message. Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. You do not, whoever you are, listening online or sitting here, you do not disbelieve in God and his son, Jesus Christ, without at the same moment believing just as deeply in something else. Because every person feels this need to be justified and made right. How how do I have a sense that I'm okay? That's why they write books like, I'm okay, you're okay. The Bible is a book that could be summarized, you're so not okay, he had to come and die for us. Very different. I'm okay, you're okay. Why are books like that written? Because we know we're not, but we want to somehow justify and be made right and feel better about ourselves. And here's the other thing I think is interesting. You know, for a while now, the world's been chattering about not just atheism, but new atheism. It's a warmer, friendlier atheism that tries to convince us you can be an atheist and still have hope and live a meaningful life, which is just so non-rational. If you move down the path and believe everything they're saying, logically, you should kill yourself. So talk about people that are not living by reason alone. Here's the truth. There are still... Very few people who claim 
to be atheists. Do you realize that? Don't be intimidated by our world that harps on and on and on and on. It is an incredibly low percentage of people who claim to be atheists. What is on the rise? Oh, here's what's on the rise. Human beings who say, I'm spiritual, but not religious. I just don't need what we got right here. I don't need organized religion. So what is going on? Here's what's going on, you guys. The human heart created in the image of God is so reluctant to let go, to reject altogether spirituality. Why? Because every person has a sense of the otherness of this world and that there's something beyond what I can touch and taste and see and slide under a microscope and graph out on a chart. They have a sense of the otherness that there's something beyond. And so what is it that causes us to wrestle with our faith? What is it, in other words, that exacerbates this sense that we already have that I'm not okay and I need help? I probably need help actually from outside of myself, somewhere with greater resources, more power. What is it that causes us to wrestle with our faith. Well, you can see it in our passage today, what is still going on. Still going on today. What was going on then is still going on today. I, I don't know about you, but I, I, I read the Bible. How much of it? Every year. And I don't find myself saying, oh, every year as things get worse in our world, this becomes less relevant. Oh, I wish it addressed the issues of today. No. The worse things get, the more I'm struck by, oh my goodness, this is timeless. Yes, there may have been chariots and now there's fast cars, but the human heart, you just see it. You're like, the issues and the things are there. They're there. Nothing new under the sun. Just repackaged and promoted in a fresh, clever way. Here's what you see in our passage that you still see today. Look at verse 2. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death... Who was highly valued to him. We're created in the image of God. Have an awareness of our need for God. And that something's wrong. But here's our sin nature. Our sin nature that we're born with. Drives us. To ignore what matters most. Until. Pain and suffering come calling. Or the potential loss of something we value comes crashing in on us. You think about it. I know I probably hear it more than you do. But still, if you're alive and you're, you're aware and you're listening. How many people do you ever say, uh, ever hear say, oh my goodness, I hit pause. I stopped. And I considered, I examined the purpose of my life during the very best year of my life. Not, oh no, it's when cancer strikes. 
It's when you're shattered by divorce. It's when you're brokenhearted over infertility. Or dare I say, when you're overwhelmed by a worldwide pandemic. Who could have seen that coming, right? A worldwide pandemic that isolated us from other people in a way that showed us we are created in the image of God and we are relational. Isolated us from other people and shut down. So many of the things that keep us so amused and too busy to think about what matters most. And now all of a sudden people were forced to do what they are so uncomfortable to do. Be with themselves. Oh, by themselves. Greatest fear. Let me go to clubs and bars and places and travel and just stay busy. And they couldn't. I know Netflix gave us extra stuff and now I've got the Disney channel that I never watched. But, you know, yes, you could have watched more TV. But after a while, even that's like, ah, I need more. Paul Kingsnorth is an author of 10 books as well as an edgy, progressive environmental activist. Doesn't sound like someone who'd be interested in Christianity, does it? Well, after he lived through what we all lived through last year, in January 2021, he wrote this on his personal website that I'm sure freaked out his followers. He has a cult following. He wrote this on his personal website, and I quote, Over the last decade, I've been on an increasingly determined search for truth, which, as for so many lost Western people, has taken me to all quarters. For five years, I studied and practiced Zen Buddhism. I'm still grateful for the insights that accorded me, but there was something missing. In search of what that something might be, I explored Taoism, mythology, Sufism, traditionalism, Alexandrian Wicca, and all sorts of other bits and pieces. They all taught me something, but not enough. Then, in 2020, as the world was turned upside down, so was I. Unexpectedly and initially against my will, I found myself being pulled determinedly towards Christianity. It's a long story, which I might tell one day. Suffice it to say that I started the year as an eclectic eco-pagan with a long-held, unformed ache in my heart and ended it a practicing Christian. The ache gone. And replaced by the thing that all along I turned out to have been looking for. Well, all righty. <laughs> Mic drop. Yeah. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. So let me poke it. Because I know some people are skeptical, right? Foxhole conversion. Skeptical when people turn to God... In a hospital bed, in a prison cell, or after tragedy. But listen to me. The fact that someone turns to God during tragedy does not discount the longing that had always been there. 
Tragedy, here's what's going on, folks. Tragedy simply amplifies the longing, like turning up the volume on something that had always been there, but was in the background. It was just in the background. See, if there is a God, and there is, and you were created to be in relationship with him through his son, and you are, you are, then the emptiness and longing that you only occasionally feel. If you were be, to be honest, you would admit it just, it just strikes you sometimes. This emptiness and longing, that, that occasional fleeting emptiness and longing that you sense during good times just cannot be ignored when things go bad. Pain and suffering, pain and suffering take the background music of this longing and push it forward like standing down front at a heavy metal rock concert so that it just cannot be ignored anymore. The decibels of pain and suffering simply amplify this longing in a way that you can no longer ignore. That's why C.S. Lewis said, He knew something about suffering, having lost a dear wife. He knew something about struggling against Christianity and not just easily saying, yeah, whatever, I believe. He said, pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Pain and suffering, confusion, loss of things highly valued to us amplifies a longing that had always been there, just in the background. Oh, listen, bad times don't create this longing and desire for God. They simply push it forward and put an exclamation point on it. They just push it forward, take it out of the margin, take it out of a footnote, and boom, there it is in billboard big letters, neon. It just can't be ignored anymore, but it was always And since we're talking about faith, let me help you avoid a mistake that I see people make all the time. And it's because we're so hardwired for I've got to do something and I've got to do it well enough that even when people consider faith and hear the message that you're saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone plus nothing, here's what they do. Then they take their faith. And they start making it, in a sense, having faith in their faith instead of faith in Jesus. Now, some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about, but some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you do it. You do it. You say you believe that the Bible teaches that we're saved by faith alone, but here's what you do. Then you say, but do I have enough faith? Is it the right kind of faith? Is it robust enough? Is there any, any doubt mixed in with it? Because... My faith has to be this perfect faith so that he'll accept it. What are you doing? You're turning it all back into works again and making it all about you. It's not about your faith. It's about where you place the faith that you do have. If you put it in Jesus, don't make it all about your faith. There are some... 
who get all worked up about how robust their faith is instead of how powerful and perfect and all-sufficient our Savior is. They scrutinize their faith constantly, wondering if it's strong enough, if it's heartfelt enough, and concerned that there might be some little bit of doubt mixed in there. Now listen to me. I know this passage, right? So some of you are thinking, but, woo, the centurion had this amazing faith. I know this passage is extolling this amazing faith of the centurion who said, you don't even, even need to come into my house. Just say the word. But don't make a mistake right here, you guys. The reason Jesus stops in the street, turns to the crowd that's following him and makes such a big deal about this is because it's so exceptional. He doesn't see this kind of faith. He says, oh my goodness, I haven't seen this kind of faith in all Israel. He doesn't say, and make a note, folks, unless you have this same kind of faith, I can't do anything for you. He doesn't. He doesn't say that. So here's my second point that I hope will help some of you. Number two, your faith can be mixed with doubts. That's right. And I hope that's good news for some of you who who fret so often about this combing over your faith, thinking it's too weak, thinking it's never enough, and assuming Jesus is about to send you away at any moment. Because he only accepts people with a robust, doubt-free faith. If that's you here today, you say, Brad, what are you basing this on? Is this just you trying to be kind? Oh, no. God's word again. God's word. If that's you here today, I want to remind you of another faith encounter between Jesus and someone that we find in the Gospel of Mark. Where a father comes with his little boy who for a lifetime, he said it's been happening his whole life, would be seized with chaos and throw himself into the fire and throw himself into the water. Terrifying, if you can imagine as a parent being so concerned about your child. He comes to Jesus asking for healing. I want you to hear how this encounter goes down. You can find it in Mark chapter 9. Jesus says to this father, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out with tears and said, Lord, he's got it right. You are Lord. I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus didn't say, wrong answer. I can't do anything with that. You go away and you think some more. And you get yourself to a point of absolute rock solid, not a bit of doubt, faith. And you come back. He didn't say that. He healed the boy. Because this father was taking the feeble faith that he did have. And placing it in the right person. The Bible talks about what kind of faith? A mustard seed of faith. That was one of the smallest seeds that they had in that day. It talks about a mustard seed of faith. It's not about your faith. 
but where you put that faith. I would say it to you this way. It's not about, here's our tendency, it's not about perfecting your faith. It's about directing your faith to the right person. Jesus. 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 Sheldon Van Auken wrote an amazing book called A Severe Mercy. That's basically a love story that also weaves along with it his difficult journey to faith in Christ while he was a student at Yale and Oxford. That basically was a set of letters back and forth between him and C.S. Lewis where he was asking hard questions about Christianity and faith and doubt. I want you to hear some of his testimony but it, because it captures what I've already been trying to bring to you. That everybody exercises faith. It takes faith to reject Jesus and it takes faith to accept Jesus. And you can come with a faith that has some doubt. He says this. There is a gap between the probable and the proved. We're not ashamed to admit that. You're not going to be able to fully prove out all this. There's a gap between the probable and the proved. How was I to cross it? If I were to stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof. I wanted certainty. I wanted to see him eat a bit of fish. I wanted letters of fire across the sky. I got none of these. And so I continued to hang about on the edge of the gap. However... There was a gap behind me as well. I realized I could not reject Jesus without a great step of faith. And then I began to realize I could not go ahead without a great step of faith. And so ultimately he made a choice. Which every human being has to do. And to make a choice and to decide to not decide and just put it off, my friend, is a choice. Ultimately, he made a choice. He says, I could not reject Jesus. There's only one thing I could do once I'd seen the gap behind me. I turned away from it and I flung myself over the gap towards Jesus. So I now choose my side. Now listen to this. I do not affirm that I am without doubt. I do but ask for help having chosen to overcome it. I say, Lord, I believe. Help thou My unbelief. In other words, he's saying for years, I kept saying, I can't believe in Jesus. I wish I had faith, but I don't. And then he began to realize it takes faith to believe in Jesus and it takes faith to reject all the evidence we have about who he is and what he's done. Because either way, you are basing your eternal destiny On something that cannot be fully proved. You cannot fully prove Jesus is not who he says he was and did what the scriptures testify. Both camps are in the same position, my friend. I grew up in the church from a young age. There was a hymn we sang a lot that captures what I'm taught about with this issue of doubt. It says, just as I am, though tossed about, with many a conflict... Many a doubt, fightings and fears within and without. Jesus, I come, I come. And he will not turn you away. 
He will not turn you away. Don't make it all about your faith. Don't try to perfect your faith. You're still guilty of religion. You're still guilty of staying in the driver's seat. You're still guilty of trying to be in control. You're still guilty in a way of trying to justify and prove yourself by the amazing faith you have. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Put your faith, even if it's mixed with some doubts, in Jesus Christ. But now I want to caution you. I'm not giving a license here to now people to say, great, I'm going to be proud of my doubt. Oh, be careful. Here's what I want you to hear. There's a difference between faith mixed with doubt and a settled unbelief. A settled unbelief that refuses to examine the evidence for who Jesus is and what he did. I'll say it to you this way. Doubt does not have to be fatal in your life unless it leads you to be idle and disinterested in searching out the truth of who Jesus is and what he did. Oh, feel free to have doubt, but search it out. So see, there's including my son who got saved in 2019. That was, that was one of his favorite things the few years just before he got saved. Dad, I have all these questions. I just have all these questions. I love you. I'm proud of you. I don't think you're an idiot. I just have all these questions. I hear that all the time. On, in a gym, on the plane, I said, Harrison, that's fine. There are answers. Search it out. Search it out. Examine the scriptures. Examine Christianity. Examine the resurrection. If you just keep saying, I have all these questions, and you don't search it out, that's a smokescreen, my friend. That's just an excuse to stay where you are. And if you stay where you are saying that, you're probably on your way to hell. Search it out. Most people are afraid to search it out because they're afraid of what they'll find at the end of that. Because so many people who choose to examine the reasoned faith and trust in what Christianity teaches and who Jesus is, end up converting, end up becoming Christians. And they've already decided, I don't want to be a Christian. I don't want the world to be like that. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want to be accountable to someone else. I don't want to not do whatever I want with my body and my life. And so there's these things that people say. Your doubt doesn't have to be fatal unless it leads you to be idle. And disinterested in searching out the truth. But as we close, I want you to think some more about this word worthy. It's used twice in our passage. I want you to think some more about this word worthy. And about the centurion's assessment of himself. His own condition in comparison to Jesus. He said, I am, say it, not worthy. Not worthy. And the basis for that comparison was the power and authority. He had recognized the authority and power of Jesus. He said, I'm a guy that has some authority. I'm under authority that has given me a delegated authority. I get authority and power. He saw it in Jesus. The basis for that comparison was the power and authority and wonder of Jesus because he concluded that Jesus was more than just a traveling teacher. 
Look at verse 6 again. Because in verse 6, he calls Jesus Lord. In the same sentence where he says about himself, I am. Uh, you are Lord and I am unworthy. What about you today? How do you see Jesus? And how do you see yourself? Because these two things are connected, my friend. How do you see Jesus and how do you see yourself? When you see Jesus for who he really is, in his splendor and perfections and authority and power and humility and wonder and goodness, you'll see your own true spiritual condition as a sinner who could never save yourself. Jesus says in verse 9, he uses the word marvel, and it can be translated wonder, amazed. It's only used twice in the Gospels. One time it says Jesus marveled that in his hometown he could do almost nothing because they did not believe. Jesus marvels over unbelief, and he marvels at robust faith. In this passage, Jesus was amazed, amazed, because this is so unusual that there was a man with such power and authority who knew he needed help from someone else. He was amazed that this man knew his own goodness. We put our trust in goodness. Could never save him. And he was amazed how this man trusted, had complete confidence in the power of Jesus' word. But say the word. What about you? Where are you today in relationship to who Jesus is, who you think you are, and where you're putting your faith and trust? That same word, worthy, in Luke 7, gets used in the last book of the Bible, Revelation, over and over, and it is always surrounding Jesus and not us. Worthy. Listen to what Revelation chapter 5 tells us. John, by God's spirit, has peeled back the curtain of where this is all headed and gives us a glimpse, a peek, a preview. Revelation 5, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back. Sealed with seven seals. Official documents were were written on the inside and on the outside. And they would be sealed with wax. If it's sealed seven times, that's a big deal. Sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Verse 11, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering 
myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Oh God, thank you for your word. Oh God, thank you for the free offer of the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. Expose our prideful human tendency to still be in control, to try to perfect what we bring. Bring us to the humble, heartfelt place of just saying, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Give us eyes to see who Jesus is and what he has done that we could never do for ourselves. And oh God, settle and comfort some believers who have spent a lifetime combing over their faith, fretting, fretting about their faith instead of praising their Savior and telling someone else about it. Use us in this dark day for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.